You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. We cage animals to keep them safe from us and us from them. What if we caged transplanted cells to keep them safe from our immune system and vice versa? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing generic drugs for new uses. And with me is Dr. Barjor Gimme, Assistant Professor, Department of Radiology, the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas, and the Department of Radiology and Radiological Science, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Gimme and I are discussing his microcontainer idea and his research related to encapsulated cell-based therapies. Dr. Gimme, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Bloom. So what is a microcontainer? How small is it? What does it look like? Well, essentially, it's a very small hollow device that is capable of encapsulating cells. And it is cubic in nature. It's about 300 microns in linear dimension. And it has small pores that allow oxygen and nutrients to get in allow waste products to get out, but prevent attack from macrophages and immune complements. And what kind of cells would you put inside? We're looking at insulin-secreting cells for diabetes therapy, but we've certainly explored the ideas of uh, supporting cancer therapy with this as well. What are these little nano cages made of? Right now, our first generation of these devices were made out of metal so that we could easily track them with MRI. But our new generation are made out of a very highly cross-linked polymer And so this way, they're both optically and MRI transparent, and we can peer inside the devices to see how our encapsulated cells are indeed functioning. We can peer inside both with light and with MRI. And how would we know if they're functioning? What's our signal for that? With light, uh, we have several optical markers of calcium fluxes and so on to see how these uh, cells are responding. And with MRI, we have some activation-based contrast agents, such as manganese which enter through voltage-gated channels. And so if the cells are active, there's contrast uptake, there's preferential uptake of the contrast, and then we can visualize it quite clearly. How do you make these little cages? We use micro and nanofabrication technologies that were originally developed in the computer chip industry. And uh, we've made a few adaptations to that and used some self-assembly and some spontaneous assembly techniques to create three-dimensional structures as opposed to 2D. And how do you get the cells inside? At what stage do those go in? The devices we're making now have, it's an open cube, and we inject the cells in there, and then we close the cube with a lid that is also porous. And when did you have this first idea of seeing these little nano cubes in your mind with with cell-based therapies inside? When I was doing my doctoral work in Chicago in 2002, we'd done quite a bit of work on imaging the viability of cells inside biocapsules. These were very large biocapsules, and we were imaging their viability with MRI. It was very clear to me that this was not the way to go because cells would not remain viable in there for very long because they would be starved of oxygen and of nutrients. So when I went to Johns Hopkins to do my postdoctoral work, we started working with self-assembling micro-devices and using them for encapsulated cell therapy or with the idea of encapsulated cell therapy. And we were very successful in showing proof of principle But there's a huge leap from proof of principle to actually having these devices that are functional and that can be used in therapy in humans. So very fortunately, when I joined UT Southwestern, I was able to secure several grants to fund some of this work. And now we're making them out of a cross-linked polymer that we believe will eventually be used in translational research. And what happened to the metal ones? Why didn't they work? There are a few downsides to it. It's very difficult to load them because they're spontaneously assembled. And so 
well, you'd have to either load them prior to assembly or after assembly. And if you load them prior to assembly, the, the chemicals that are used in the assembly process become quite toxic to the cells. So, so there were several downsides to that. And so we moved to a different approach where we pre-assembled part of the device and then we cap it off. How do you decide what the, the best size is and the best shape is for these nano cages? The size is decided by oxygen diffusion limitations. So oxygen diffuses about 150 microns from a capillary. And then by the time it gets to that point, it's been consumed by most of the other cells. And so that's how we pick the size of 300 microns so that no cell is more than 150 microns from any of the sides of the device. And in terms of the shape, it's so far it's just been convenience to make cubicle devices, but we are now moving into spherical. Does the shape of the device have an impact on its success, or is it just the ease with which you can make it? We believe that spherical devices will be better. I'm not sure whether it will have an impact on success or not. I, I don't think, I think it's too preliminary to say that, but we believe that they may be better because there's less of a chance of them getting undesirably lodged into certain locations in the body. So just as we can think in our mind, a, a square box can get lodged someplace, but a ball might roll smoothly through it. Same thing in the body? Exactly. So you've been working since 2002, so about five years on this. How long do you envision this process taking from start to finish? I mean, the first time we're going to get one of these for inside a human patient. Right. So we've had very positive results from short-term biocompatibility studies. So I think the next step now is to do some long-term biocompatibility studies. And if those same trends hold, then we will indeed do our transplantation models. So right now we have results by encapsulating islets and looking at the entire system in vitro. And we have some in vivo results that are very promising with cancer cells, but not with islets. So to answer your question as to how long it'll take for diabetes therapy, I believe that once we've proved long-term biocompatibility, we'll be ready to test it out. And how long is long-term? Well, in mice, we're looking at several months. And if that holds, then I think we'll be ready to move into actual therapy. If you just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and with me is Dr. Barjor Gimme, Assistant Professor, University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas. We are talking about encapsulated cell therapies. So what are the future steps? We've talked a little bit about biocompatibility. What else needs to be done before this gets to humans? Just entirely testing it out in animal models to ensure that it restores insulin independence. But there are other things that may be very instructive along the way. And so we're considering mounting micro and nano sensors onto these devices that will inform us on the pH, on the oxygenation of the environment, and so on. We're also mounting micro RF sensors for MRI. So we can peer inside these devices with MRI at cellular level resolution and see how these cells, encapsulated cells, are functioning. And I think that will inform us as to how to proceed with the translational work. Do we have an idea of where the best places in the body to put these cells would be? Right now, there is a controversy about that. And so that's part of what we would like to answer with this research. The positive aspect of our small devices is that we can disperse them throughout the body into various sites. So we can do a portal infusion and have them go into the liver and there several other places that are well vascularized in the body where we can have these devices dispersed. And we can look at the relative merits and demerits of each of these transplant locations and ascertain which one would be optimal. So when we're talking about putting these inside the body for an adult male, 
how many do I need to replace what my pancreas is doing? Do I need 10? Do I need 100? So for humans, you need hundreds of thousands, but hundreds of thousands have been infused in humans for clinical studies. However, it is not entirely clear that all those hundreds of thousands are functional. So if only 2% of those are functional and, they, and that is adequate for restoring insulin independence, then our goal would be to find those 2% that are doing the best and then you would need significantly fewer islets for transplant success. So is it possible that when I do this, some of the cells are going to remain viable and other ones will get to places where they're not doing any good or they're not still viable? That is exactly right. So a very small percentage of transplanted cells are thought to survive even 24 hours post-transplantation. And if I have a child who's potentially going to become a type 1 diabetic because I have a history of that in my family, could I take out some of that child's islet cells early on and save them for a time they become diabetic and then put them in these transplants? Is that something that's possible? In principle, I suppose it is possible by doing an organ-sparing strategy where you would remove, say, some part of the pancreas and isolate some of the islets and then re-administer them when necessary. But this is very much an unanswered question at this point. You're also talking about being able to put almost any kind of functional islet cell in these containers because they won't be attacked by the immune system, or at least it won't be an effective attack. Exactly. So even animal and other human donors. So we could be talking about having mice, pancreatic islet cells in our bodies versus our own human cells, and it still might work? Yes, because there's an acute shortage of human organ donors. And so instead of doing organ transplant, first of all, cell transplant alleviates some of that, but not in the case of diabetes therapy, where you would need three donors per one recipient. So it would be very advantageous to move to animal islets. And do you expect if we do this work with the encapsulations that these transplants will last longer than the current non-encapsulated therapies or the polymer-encapsulated therapies? I believe that they'll last much longer because they'll be protected better from the host immune system. And you also mentioned about the oxygen diffusion. Is that a problem in today's transplants? To some extent. So with the clinical studies that are done with loose polymers, there is a fair amount of oxygen that gets in, but at the same time, the walls are not as thin as those of our microcapsules. So there's longer distance for the oxygen to travel, so to speak. And here we have very thin walls. And so we're right at the oxygen diffusion limit And I believe we'll be able to support transplant therapy better. So our listening audience is full of great ideas. This was a terrific idea that you came up with. Tell us how you got it from this is an idea stage to the thought that at some point you're actually going to be able to deliver this to patients. And take us on that journey. I was very, very fortunate. I was inordinately fortunate. I received a pilot grant from the Partnership for Cures and from the Goldman Philanthropic Partnerships to pursue some of this work. And so we were able to show some very positive results in terms of cell encapsulation, in terms of tracking them non-invasively with MRI in animals, and in terms of doing some short-term biocompatibility. So I was able to leverage these results to then go ahead and seek funding from the National Institutes of Health and from the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation and so on. And I've been very successful with that, so I was very fortunate in that journey. When you work within an institution like this, who, first of all, you work at two institutions. That even makes it more difficult. But who owns this body of knowledge? Who gets the benefit of this idea? Is it the researcher? Is it the institution? Do you share it? 
Does the world get it and nobody makes a profit? The first generation of these devices were made at Johns Hopkins. So indeed, all of that intellectual property is at Johns Hopkins. But the second generation was done entirely at UT Southwestern, and all of that intellectual property is at UT Southwestern. So, so I guess there was a very clean disconnect there, uh, very clear delineation for us because this, it just happened that we made one generation of devices while I was a postdoc. Then I transitioned to faculty appointment and on entirely different funds and on, on a new project, new grant, we made another generation of these devices. I want to thank Dr. Barjor Gimme of UT Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas for sharing his encapsulated cell therapy research with us. I am attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing generic drugs and other existing therapies. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.